It has been said that no ghost story has ever been so beautifully written. Stephen King wrote that there are few, if any, descriptive passages in the English language that are finer than the opening to Shirley Jackson's fifth novel. It is the sort of quiet epiphany every writer hopes for, words that somehow transcend the sum of the parts. Not only did Shirley Jackson publish six horror novels and scores of short stories through her career, she also reveled in the rumors concerning her life outside of writing, in particular, that she was a practicing amateur witch. She had a substantial library of books about the occult, and she was known to read tarot, apparently with uncanny accuracy. When her husband was involved in a contract dispute with the publisher Alfred Knopf, Shirley Jackson joked that she put a curse on Knopf that caused him to break his leg in a skiing accident. Many took her joke to be truth. One critic wrote in the Associated Press, Miss Jackson writes not with a pen, with a broomstick. A Times article referred to her as Virginia Werewolf. Jackson loved these stories and reporters and book reviewers ate them up. She wrote in her essay, Memory and Delusion, the very nicest thing about being a writer is that you can afford to indulge yourself endlessly with oddness and nobody can really do anything about it as long as you keep writing and kind of using it up as it were. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, ghosts of the past, and hauntings. I am your host, Jason Nemore Hardin, and with the Halloween season starting up, we are digging into Shirley Jackson's legendary novel, The Haunting of Hill House. It is much easier, I find, to write a story than to cope competently with millions of daily trials and irritations that turn up in an ordinary house, and it helps a good deal, particularly with children around, if you can see them through a flattering veil of fiction." End quote. Shirley Hardy Jackson was born December 14, 1916 in San Francisco, California. Her relationship with her mother, Geraldine, was strained since childhood. Geraldine had married young and was disappointed when she immediately became pregnant with Shirley as she had been looking forward to spending some time with her husband before a child demanded her attention. Unable to fit in with other children, Shirley spent much of the time writing which further distressed her mother, who wanted more than anything for her daughter to be, quote-unquote, normal. Her younger brother, Barry, was without a doubt mom's favorite, a fact her mother never even attempted to hide, and which further intensified traumas in young Shirley. During her senior year of high school, the Jackson family relocated to Rochester, New York, after which she attended Brighton High School, where she received her diploma in 1934. She then attended the nearby University of Rochester, where her parents felt they could maintain supervision over her studies. Not surprisingly, Shirley was unhappy with her classes and took a year-long hiatus from her studies before transferring to Syracuse University, where she flourished both creatively and socially. At Syracuse, she received her bachelor's degree in journalism and became involved with the campus literary magazine, through which she met her future husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman. 
It was while attending Syracuse that the university's literary magazine published her very first story, Janice, about a teenager's suicide attempt. Her first published story, but far from her last. Quote, I cannot find any patience for those people who believe that you start writing when you sit down at your desk and pick up your pen and finish writing when you put down your pen again. End quote. The Haunting of Hill House, her fifth novel, follows a group of individuals participating in a paranormal study at a reportedly haunted mansion. The novel, which interpolated supernatural phenomena with psychology, went on to become a critically esteemed example of the haunted house story and, as stated in the opening, was described by Stephen King as one of the most important horror novels of the 20th century. In The Haunting of Hill House, she gathered all the elements she'd had long-time obsessions with, an unhappy, unmarried woman with a secret trauma, the simultaneous longing for a mother's love and fear of its control, the uncertain legacies handed down by previous generations, and finally, the supernatural as a representation of the deepest psychic fears and desires. The result was a masterpiece of literary horror made to stand the test of time. The novel begins with Eleanor's journey to Hill House. Thirty-two years old, she has spent all her adult life dutifully caring for her mother, lifting a cross old lady from her chair to her bed, setting out endless little trays of soup and oatmeal, stealing herself to the filthy laundry. Since her mother's recent death, Eleanor has been living with her sister, whom she hates. She cannot remember a time when she was happy. Shirley writes, her years with her mother had been built up devotedly around small guilts and small reproaches, constant weariness, and unending despair. Having spent so much time in isolation, Eleanor suffers from painful self-consciousness, which makes her anxious at even the thought of a simple conversation. And when a letter comes inviting her to join the group of researchers at Hill House, she does not hesitate. All her life, she has been clinging to the belief that someday something would happen. It is difficult not to draw many parallels to Jackson's own life and her hope of one day finding her way out of her own entrapment. A Hill House a house that contains nightmares and makes them manifest in which fantasies of homecoming end in eternal solitude is the ultimate metaphor for Jackson's marriage to Stanley Hyman, a symbolic, tormented, yet intensely committed union. Early drafts demonstrate how crucial marriage was to Shirley's vision of the novel from the start. In one of the earlier versions, the sister of Erica, the protagonist, later to be renamed Eleanor, wants to set her up with a man. Carrie wanted me to get married for some inscrutable reason, Erica says. Perhaps she found the married state so excruciatingly disagreeable herself that it was the only thing bad enough she could think of to do to me. To be married, Shirley always feared, was to lose her sense of self, to disintegrate, precisely what happens to her protagonist, Eleanor, in the grips of the house. In addition to marriage being a principal component of the novel, there was also, similar to some of her earlier works, poisonous mother-daughter relationship. Shirley's poisonous relationship with her own mother, 
whose relentless criticism had conditioned her to accept Stanley's belittling and betrayal, underpinned the damaging dynamic of her marriage. She wrote a long and painful letter to her husband Stanley that further goes to illustrate their marriage. And though it is only dated September 9th, lacking which year it was written, it has been concluded that it was most likely written in 1958, while Jackson was deep into writing the novel. There are going to be, eventually, the reasons why our marriage ends, and you ought to know that it will not be a vague, sudden emotion or quarrel which drives, has driven me away. She goes on to write of her loneliness in the face of his indifference to her and the children, his inveterate interest in other women, his belittling her, his obsessive devotion to teaching and to his students, which left no room for other emotional involvement, not even a legitimate one, at home. She concluded the letter with a final accusation. You once wrote me a letter. I know you hate my remembering these things, telling me that I would never be lonely again. I think that was the first, the most dreadful lie you ever told me. In her experience and fiction lecture, in which she discusses the writing of The Haunting of Hill House, Jackson writes that she had a sleepwalking episode one night and found on her desk the next morning a piece of her yellow writing paper on which she had scrawled, Dead, dead. No such paper can be found among the drafts of the novel in her archive. Instead, there is a page on which she scribbled, Family, family. In the world of the novel, the two are essentially the same. It took several tries, as was typical, for her to settle on the exact source of Hill House's horrors. In an early draft, the main character arriving at the house knocks on a heavy wooden door. In the next, she finds a knocker with a lion's head. In the final version, the knocker Eleanor uses has become a child's face. She is entering a family home, but it is a home that has gone badly wrong. The exploration of fear is one that drives the story along, and at one point the characters try to define said primitive human emotion. The protagonist's answers are notably similar. I think we are only afraid of ourselves, Dr. Montague suggests. Of seeing ourselves clearly and without disguise, Luke elaborates. Of knowing what we really want, Theodora adds. I am always afraid of being alone. Eleanor says, confessing her own personal fear. In the crucial scene that immediately follows, Eleanor awakens in the night to hear a voice babbling in the next room and clutches at the hand of Theodora, who is supposed to be sleeping beside her. The voice turns into the cry of a child, sobbing. Please, don't hurt me. Please, let me go home. Eleanor screams. The lights go on, and she sees that Theodora is not next to her after all, but in bed across the room. God, God, Eleanor says, whose hand was I holding? The house is the haunting, can never be unhaunted, Jackson wrote in her notes for the novel. On another page, she wrote, the house is Eleanor. Jackson clearly intended the external signs of haunting to be interpreted as manifestations of Eleanor's troubled psyche as over and over, in her notes and lectures about the book, Jackson states that she does not believe in ghosts. 
In an early version of the novel, the spirit voice that the protagonist hears whispers to her to go away. But at some point in the writing process, Jackson realized that leaving Hill House was more frightening than actually staying. Like an abusive relationship or an unquestionably entangled marriage of nearly 20 years, the house is both impossible to remain in and impossible to escape. In the end, of course, Eleanor's delusion that she is coming home to join whatever has been calling her turns out to have been painfully wrong. Eleanor, unmarried and alone, with no place to go, no home to return to, her first desire is a longing for home. And in the end, she achieves it by surrendering to the pull of Hill House. I am home. I am home, she thinks in her last moments of delusion, racing madly through the house before driving her car into a tree. The novel concludes with the same lines it opened with. Hill House itself not sane, stood against its heels, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, its walls continued upright. Bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. This goes to show that her fantasies of unity go unfulfilled. Just as Shirley's hope that marriage would bring an end to her loneliness turned out to be in vain, Eleanor will not take her place in Hill House among the ghosts with whom she imagined herself in communion. Hill House is really swinging, Jackson would write to her editor, Carol Brandt, though the process of writing the novel was a painful one. By September 1958, she had made little progress. Every week she threw out half of the manuscript and started over. Most of her work was done in a private study upstairs on account of her husband having had kicked her out of the downstairs study, she claimed, because her desk was always too messy, implying that this was something Stanley didn't approve of. She finished the book at a second typewriter she kept in the dining room adjacent to Stanley's workspace. Perhaps she was trying to deliberately discomfit him. She tended to talk out loud when she was writing, and yell, and swear, and laugh, and sometimes cry, which made him nervous. And for the first time in the duration of their relationship, he refused to read her manuscript as he found the concept of ghosts simply too frightening. Fortunately, Pat Covici at Viking Publishing proved to be the most patient of editors, and rather than give Jackson a firm deadline, he was fond of asking her to submit her novels, quote, When the Dogwood Blooms in Central Park, which they both took to calling Dogwood Day. Carol Brandt, whose instinct for soothing Shirley's nerves would prove very strong over the coming years, encouraged her to put the book aside and write some short stories to get her mind off the book. She quickly submitted a whimsical piece called The Very Strange House Next Door, which Brandt sold to the Saturday Evening Post for $2,250, Jackson's first story to be published in the periodical and her highest fee up to that point. Don't press the book and force the ending against the handicaps and difficulties you're having. Brandt wrote her in the spring of 1959 when she was struggling to complete the novel. 
Take it easily and gently. It was obviously the right kind of encouragement as she managed to finish the haunting of Hill House a week later. As with all great ghost stories, readers have been divided over how to interpret and understand it. Are the ghosts intended to be real, or are they psychological manifestations of Eleanor, the book's most disturbed character? On this fundamental question, the novel remains deliberately enigmatic. However, what cannot be questioned about Hill House is her technical mastery. The following summer, just after completing the manuscript, she gave a lecture called Garlic in Fiction, a masterpiece of clarity that reveals how thoroughly in command of her talent she was. The greatest danger to the writer, she said, is a reader who decides to stop reading, and so the writer must use every weapon in the arsenal to snare the reader's attention. Nevertheless, images and symbols, if used too frequently, will overpower the story just as garlic will overpower a dish. They must be employed only as accents. For each character in a story or novel, she used one basic image or set of images that the reader would associate with the character. For Eleanor, however, there are five. One, the little old lady she meets on her way to get her car, who tells her she will pray for her. Two, the two stone lions outside one of the houses she passes. Three, the oleander bushes surrounding another house. Four, a white cat on the step of a cottage, and five, the little girl she encounters in the diner who refuses to drink her milk because it is not in the cup painted on the inside with stars that she prefers at home. Insist on your cup of stars, Eleanor silently bids the girl, poignantly, since her childhood, like Jackson's, clearly did not include such a cup or a mother who would have indulged her whims. The five symbols recur throughout the novel, and each time they do, Jackson would explain that they remind the reader of Eleanor's essential loneliness and homelessness. They become artificially loaded words that, deployed correctly, have a powerful impact. Though Hill House did not make any bestseller list, it sold far better than any of her previous novels, around 12,000 copies for the hardcover edition in the first six months. For a condensed version, Reader's Digest offered $35,000 to be split between Jackson and Viking, which guaranteed another 25,000 copies in print. She was thrilled about the deal. For the first time, a novel of hers had finally earned back its advance and was even making a profit. She and Stanley paid off their mortgage and all the smaller debts they had accumulated, including $1,800 to her parents. You come after the mortgage and before the dentist, she told her mother and father. The money also meant that she could take her time before embarking on a new novel, which for her was a mixed blessing as she consistently wrote best under a deadline. Unfortunately, by the time The Haunting of Hill House was published, Shirley suffered numerous health problems. Being a heavy smoker, this resulted in chronic asthma. She suffered joint pain, exhaustion, and dizziness, which led to fainting spells and which were attributed to a heart problem. Near the end of her life, she also saw a psychiatrist for severe anxiety that had kept her housebound for extended periods of time. 
a problem which was worsened by a colitis diagnosis which made it physically difficult for her to travel even short distances from her home. In an ill-formed attempt to ease her anxiety and agoraphobia, the doctor prescribed barbiturates, at the time considered a safe, harmless drug. In addition to these factors, she also had periodic prescriptions for amphetamines for weight loss on account of her having suffered with weight problems since she was a teenager. This, in turn, may also have inadvertently aggravated her anxiety and more than likely led to an increasingly harmful cycle of prescription drug abuse where she used the two medications to counteract each other's effects. Despite her failing health and troubles with addiction, she continued to write and publish several works in the 1960s, including her final novel, which was named by Time magazine as one of the 10 best novels of 1962. By 1964, the psychological aspects of her illness were responding well to therapy and she was able to resume normal activities. This included a round of speaking engagements at writers' conferences, as well as planning a new novel titled Come Along With Me, which was to be a major departure from the style and subject matter of her previous works. Sadly, in 1965, Shirley Jackson died in her sleep at her home in North Bennington, Vermont, at the age of 48. In 1968, her husband would release a posthumous volume of her work, Come Along With Me, containing her unfinished last novel, as well as 14 previously uncollected short stories, among them Louisa, Please Come Home, and three lectures she gave at colleges or writers' conferences in her last years. Here is a final quote from a master of horror and ghost stories. A writer who is serious and economical can store away small fragments of ideas and events and conversations and even facial expressions and mannerisms. It is my belief, for instance, that somewhere in the back of my own mind is a kind of storeroom where there are hundreds of small items I am going to need someday, and when I need them, I will remember them. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Moore Harden. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page at House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, have a very haunted Halloween, and as always, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez, narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden.